Matthew, chapter 25, verses 1 through 30. Chapter 25. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, in the close of the foregoing chapter, had exhorted all Christians to the great duty of watchfulness and to be in a posture of readiness against his coming, which duty he is pleased to inculcate again in this chapter, and accordingly he urges the necessity of it from two eminent parables, the former of the ten virgins, verses one, and the latter of any man traveling into a far country, verse 14, verses one and two. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. Burkett notes, By the kingdom of heaven, here is meant the state of the visible church on earth. It cannot be understood of the kingdom of glory, for there are no foolish virgins in that kingdom, nor yet of the invisible kingdom of grace, for therein are no foolish virgins neither. But in the visible church here on earth, there ever has been a mixture of wise and unwise, of saints and hypocrites. Five of these virgins were wise and five were foolish. Observe where our Lord's great charity in supposing and hoping that amongst the professors of the gospel, the number of sincere Christians is equal with hypocritical professors. Five were wise and five foolish, teaching us that we should not confine the church of Christ within a narrow compass nor confine our charity to a few, and think none shall go to heaven but those of our own party and persuasion, but to extend our charity to all Christians that hold the foundation with us, and to hope well of them. Lord, let me rather err on the charitable hand than be found on the censorious and damning side. This is to imitate my Savior, whose charity supposed as many wise as foolish virgins, as many saints as hypocrites in the church. All these virgins are said to take their lamps and go forth to meet the bridegroom, for understanding which, we must know that our Savior alludes to the ancient custom of marriages which were celebrated in the night, when usually ten young men attended the bridegroom, and as many virgins attended the bride, with lamps in their hands, the bridegroom leading home his bride by the light of those lamps. By those virgins are shadowed forth the professors of Christianity, the foolish virgins are such as satisfy themselves with a bare profession, without bringing forth fruits answerable thereunto. The wise virgins are such as walk answerably to their profession, persevered and continued steadfast therein, and abounded in the grace and virtues of a good life. They are called wise virgins for the purity of their faith, for the purity of their worship, and for the purity of their conversations. Verses 3 and 4. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Burkett notes, By the lamps are meant an outward profession of faith and holiness. By the oil in the lamps is to be understood that solemn profession of repentance and faith which all Christians make in baptism. By oil in their vessel is meant the sanctifying and saving graces of the Holy Spirit the growth and improvement of them, with constancy and perseverance in them. Observe here wherein the wise and foolish virgins agreed, and wherein they differed. They agreed thus far, that both took their lamps, both lighted them, they both had oil in their lamps. The difference was not that the wise had oil and the foolish had none, 
but in this, that the wives took care for a future supply of oil to feed their lambs when the first oil was spent. Some professors, like foolish virgins, content themselves with a blazing lamp of an outward profession without concerning themselves to secure an inward principle of grace and love which would maintain that profession as the oil maintains the lamp. As the lamp will not long hold burning without a stock of oil to feed it, so a profession of religion, though never so glorious, will not be lasting or persevering without a principle of faith and love in the heart to support and maintain it. Learn hence that the true wisdom of the Christian consists in this, to take care that not only the lamp of his life may shine by outward profession, but that the vessel of his heart may be furnished with the graces of the Holy Spirit as a prevailing and abiding principle. Verse 5. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Burkett notes, That is, while Christ delays his coming to persons by death and judgment, they are not so diligent as they ought to prepare themselves for death and judgment. Instead of being upon their watch and guard, they slumbered and slept. Note that not only visible professors, but the holiest and best of Christians, are very prone to spiritual slumber. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Spiritual slumber consists in this, when graces are not lively and kept in exercise, particularly faith, hope, and love, when there is an abatement of our love and zeal, an intermission of our care and watchfulness. This is a degree of spiritual slumber. Yet the saint's slumber is not a prevailing slumber. It is not a universal slumber. It is not in all the faculties of the soul. If there be deadness in the affections, yet there is no searedness in the conscience. I sleep, says the church, but my heart waketh. Can't be too. Still, there is a principle in the soul which takes God's part, and the Christian groans under the burden of his dull and drowsy state. But the greatest wisdom is to maintain a constant watch, that we may at no time be surprised by the bridegroom's coming, or be in a confusion when death and judgment shall overtake us. Blessed are those virgins whose lamps always burn bright. Verse 6. And behold, at midnight there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Burkett notes, At midnight, that is, at the most dismal and unseasonable time, when all the virgins were fast asleep, and when awakened in great affrightment, could not on a sudden consider what to do. Such is the case of those who put off their repentance and preparation for another world till they are surprised by death and judgment. Lord, how will come the midnight cry of the bridegroom's coming, terrify and amaze the unprepared soul? What a surprising word will this be. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Learn hence that the bridegroom will certainly come, though at his own time, and then all shall be called upon, both prepared and unprepared, to go forth to meet him. Reason says he may come, because there is a just God that will render to every one according to his deeds, and reward both body and soul for all the services they have done for God. The body shall not always remain like a solitary widow in the dust, but shall meet its old companion, the soul, again. And as reason says, he may come, faith says, he will come, and argues from the promise of Christ, John 14.3, and from the purchase from Christ's affection to us, and from our affection to him. Faith has seen him upon the cross, and determined she shall see him in the clouds. The bridegroom will certainly come at his own time, happy they that are ready to go forth to meet him. 
verses 7 and 8. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. Burkett notes, The virgins arising and trimming their lamp doth denote their actual preparation for Christ's coming in appearance, and they're putting themselves into a posture of readiness to receive him. Thence learn that a believing apprehension of the certainty and suddenness of our Lord's coming and approach will rouse us out of our spiritual slumber and prepare us to meet him with joy and assurance. Then they arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are gone out. Observe here, one, a request made, Give us of your oil. There is a time when the neglectors of grace will be made sensible of the worth of grace by the want of it. Such as now undervalue, yea, vilify the grace of God, will be heard to say, O oh, give us of your oil. Observe, too, the reason of the request, for our lamps are gone out. Thence learn that the lamp of profession will certainly go out, which has not a stock of grace to feed and maintain it. Verse 9. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the wise virgin's denial. Not so. They will part with no oil. Learn hence that it must be the care of everyone to get grace on his own. Otherwise, the grace of others will do him no good. It is not what others have done, nay, not what Christ himself has done, that will save us without our own endeavors. Observe too, the reason of their denial, lest there be not enough for us and you. Thence note that such Christians as have most grace, or the largest stock of grace, have none to spare. None to spare in regard of their occasions for grace on earth, and in regard of their expectations of glory in heaven. Observe 3. The advice and counsel given. Go to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. Some take this for an exhortation, others for a mocking derision. Go to them that sell, that is, some say, to the shop of the ordinances, where it may be had. Thence note that such as would have grace must have timely recourse to the ordinances and means of grace. Go to them and buy. Others understand the word ironically, and is spoken of by way of derision. Go to them that sell, if you know where to find them, and either buy or borrow for yourselves. Learn thence that it is the greatest folly in the world to have oil to buy when we should have oil to burn, to have our grace to seek when we should have it to exert an exercise. It is no time to get grace when the bridegroom is come and the day of grace is past and over. Verse 10. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, Christ will come at the great day to his people as a bridegroom and to the wicked as a judge. The relation now begun twixt Christ and his church shall then be publicly solemnized. Observe, too, the qualifications of the persons who shall enter with the bridegroom into heaven, such as were ready, went in with him. The readiness is twofold, habitual and actual. Habitual readiness consists in the state of the persons justified and pardoned in the frame of the heart sanctified and renewed, and in the course of the life, universally and perseveringly holy and righteous, consists our actual preparation. Observe the doleful condition of such as were unready. 
The door is shut against them. The door of repentance. The door of hope. The door of salvation. All shut. Eternally shut. And by him that shutteth, and none can open. Learn hence the utter impossibility of ever getting our condition altered by us when the day of grace and salvation is once over with us. Woe to such souls who by that their own folly of their own delays have caused the door of conversion and remission to be everlastingly shut against their own souls. Verses 11 and 12. Afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Burkett notes, Observe here the virgin's petition and the bridegroom's reply. The petition, Lord, Lord, open to us. Learn hence that how neglect soever men are of heaven and salvation here, there are none but will desire it earnestly and importunately hereafter. Afterwards, that is, when too late. Observe farther the bridegroom's reply. I know you not. That is, I own and approve you not. There is a twofold knowledge that Christ has, a knowledge of simple intuition and a knowledge of special approbation. The former knowledge Christ has of all men, the latter only of good men. Learn hence that it will be a dreadful misery for any persons, but especially for such as been eminent professors, to be disowned by Christ at his coming. To hear that dreadful word from the mouth of Christ, Verily, I know you not. Verse 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Burkett notes, Here we have our Savior's application of the foregoing parable, to be always upon our watch, continually upon our guard, to meet the bridegroom in death and judgment, because we know not the time of his coming and approach. Learn hence, that watchfulness and a prepared readiness is a great duty that lies upon all those who believe and look for Christ's coming and appearance. Happy souls who are found in a posture of readiness at the bridegroom's approach, standing with lights trimmed, loins girded, lights burning, that is, improving and exercising their grace, abounding in all the fruits of the Spirit and in all the substantial virtues of a good life. Such, and only such, shall have an entrance abundantly administered unto them into the everlasting kingdom. Verses 14 and 15. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. Unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Burkett notes, Observe here the person entrusting, Christ, the person entrusted, all Christians, and the talents they are entrusted with, goods, that is, goods of providence, riches and honors, gifts of mind, wisdom, parts and learning, gifts of grace, all these goods Christ dispenses variously, more to some, fewer to others, but with expectation of improvement from all. Learn one that Christ is the great Lord of the universe and owner of all his servants' goods and talents, that every talent is given us by our Lord to improve and employ for our master's use and service. Three, that it pleases the Lord to dispense his gifts variously among his servants. To some he commits more, to others fewer talents. Four, 
that to this Lord of ours, every one of us must be accountable and responsible for every talent committed to us and entrusted with us. Verses 16 through 18. And then he that had received five talents went out and traded with the same and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. Burkett notes, The former verses gave an account of the Lord's distribution. These acquaint us with the servant's negotiation. Some traded with and made improvements of their talents. Others traded not at all. Yet it is not said they did embezzle their talent, but not improve it. Learn, it's not sufficient to justify us that we do not abuse our talents. It is fault enough to hide them and not improve them. The slothful servant shall no more escape punishment than the wasteful servant. Verses 19 through 23. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoned with them. And so he that received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou delivered us unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained besides them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two others beside them. And his Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Burkett notes. Note here, one, that the wisdom of God dispenses his gifts and graces variously, as so many talents to his servants, to be employed and improved for his own glory and his church's good. Two, that all such servants as have received any talents must look to reckon an account for them, that this account must be particular, personal, exact, and impartial. Three, that all such servants as have been faithful in improving their talents at Christ's coming shall be both commended and rewarded also. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Where observe, one, that the state of the blessed is a state of joy. Two, that the joy which the blessed partake of is the joy of their Lord, that is, the joy which he provides and which he possesses. Three, that the way after which the saints partake of this joy is by entering into it, which denotes the highest and the fullest participation of it. The joy is too great to enter into them. They must enter into that. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Verses 24 through 27. Then he that received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew that thee are a hard man, reaping where thou dost not sow, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knowest that I reap where I sow not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Burkett notes, 
Observe here, one, that he that received but one talent is called to an account as well as he that received five. Heathens that have but one talent, namely the light of nature, must give an account for that one talent, as well as Christians that have five must account for five. Observe, too, the slothful servant's allegation. I knew thee to be a hard man, and I was afraid. Where note, his prejudice against his master, and the effect of that prejudice, he was afraid, and that the fruit of his fear, he hid his talent in the earth. Learn hence, that sinners entertain in their minds very hard and unkind thoughts of God. They look upon him as a hard master, rigorous in his commands, and difficult to be pleased. Learn, too, that such hard thoughts of God do naturally occasion slavish fear, which is a great hindrance to the faithful discharge of our duty to God. Observe 3. The Master's Reply to the Slothful Servant's Allegation, which contains an approbation or upriding of him for sloth and negligence, thou wicked and slothful servant, where note, one, that the slothful servant is a wicked servant, as well as an unfaithful servant, two, the wicked and slothful servants, to excuse themselves, will not stick to charge their miscarriages upon God himself, thou wert a hard man, three, that no excuses whatsoever shall serve either a slothful or unfaithful servant at the bar of Christ. Verses 28 through 30. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which has ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. Burkett notes, these words contain the sentence denounced by Christ upon the slothful servant. His punishment is first a punishment of loss. Take ye the talent from him. Learn hence that not improving the gift of God given as talents to us provokes God to take them from us, as well as misimproving. From him that hath not, that is, from him that approveth not, shall be taken that which he hath. Two, follows the punishment of sense. Cast him into outer darkness, where is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Learn thence that hell is a place and state of inexpressible misery and torment, a dismal place, as being deprived of sight and enjoyment of God, of Christ, of saints, and of angels, a doleful place, full of overwhelming sorrow and despairing grief. The gnashing of their teeth signifies their being full of rage and indignation against God, against the saints, and against themselves.